day and this week. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 6 in the Blue Pew Bible. That's on page 1656. As we continue to work our way through God's Word in the Gospel of John, we come upon this third miracle, or fourth miracle rather, in his Gospel, where he calms the storm. He goes out to his disciples and calms the storm. I want to uh, remind us that this is the second storm that Jesus has calmed. That this account shouldn't be confused with the account where he is asleep in the back of the boat, if you remember that one, asleep on a pillow in a storm when his disciples are straining at the oars, just like we have in our account here. And there, the disciples were equally terrified. And if you remember that account, found in Matthew and Luke 8, in Mark 4, if you remember what Jesus' admonition was to them, was faith. Ye of little faith. Oh, what little faith you have, he said, in that storm. This storm is different. That miracle is meant to teach and challenge the faith of the disciples, This miracle is not about their faith. It's not about our faith. This miracle is about the faithfulness of God. Let's read about it together. Starting in verse 16. It says, When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that Only one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the the bread, and after the Lord had given thanks, once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus." Now we have to remember that this is in the context of the previous miracle of feeding of the 5,000 by the five loaves and two fish. And in verse 15, if you look there, just right above where we started reading, it says, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain alone. Here, Jesus withdraws to the mountain and his disciples set out across the sea. The story tells of a gale force wind that has come up, and the disciples are caught in this wind. That, that strong wind there, the Greek there, really can be interpreted as gale force or even hurricane force. So this is a serious storm that has just blown up on the Sea of Galilee. 
Sea of Galilee is some 700 feet below sea level, and on both sides there are high mountains. So the, so the cold air rushes down the mountains and is met by the warm air over the water, and instant gale force winds can, can come up, and I'm sure that's what they were, were caught in. These are dangerous storms. And the, t- the text tells us that they are struggling through this storm. And it even says they're straining at their oars. Now, by way of application, storms can also happen in our lives. Do you ever feel like that? That your life is stormy? We go through se- seasons like that. Like you feel like you're straining at the oars. That, that you're taking two, three steps up forward and two steps back. You can feel like that in life sometimes. A real struggle. And that's what we see these disciples going through. A real hard struggle. John tells us that they rode three and a half miles, three or three and a half miles there. In Matthew's account, in Matthew 14, we read that that, they, that is equated to about six or seven hours that they are rowing. Six or seven hours. Have you ever rowed a rowboat? Now, I know not, none of us are fishermen like these guys were. But if you row a rowboat, I remember uh, Mariana, if she is here, she took us out sailing last summer, and we have to row out to her sailboat. She had me row out, and, you know, it's about from here to the back of the church. And I'm rowing, and I'm rowing, I'm going, well, this, is, this is harder than it looks. This is, this is straining. I couldn't imagine, I was thinking about that, I couldn't imagine six or seven hours of that. And gale force winds. And no one needs to tell us that life is like that sometimes. Maybe not physically, sometimes physically, sometimes emotionally, sometimes relationally, sometimes spiritually. You go through storms like that. This is a broken world we live in. We talk about that a lot at this church. This world is not how God created it. It's a broken world. And that's where, you know, when we see of, of tsunamis and earthquakes that kill, you know, five and six digits amounts of people, how terrible that is. That's because this world is broken. This world is broken. Our, our bodies, as we age, break down. This world is broken. Evil seems to succeed. We think, oh, how, can, how can they, how come they're making it? And righteousness oppressed. Spiritually, sin, as it says in in Genesis 4, sin crouches at your door and wants to master you. There's a constant struggle, isn't there, to resist sin, to resist temptation. It's constant. Truth is twisted and contorted in this world. And Jesus prepares us for all this a little later on in his gospel in chapter 16 where he even tells his, his disciples explicitly, he says, listen, sit down for a second. I just want to tell you, in this world you will have trouble. He tells them that simply, this life is going to be a struggle. I just want you to know that. Oswald Chambers wrote, suffering is the heritage of the bad, of the penitent, and of the Son of God. He goes on to say, each one ends in a cross. The bad thief is crucified, the penitent thief is crucified, and the Son of God is crucified. He concludes by saying, by these signs we know that the widespread heritage of suffering. Suffering is widespread. 
Nobody gets out. Nobody gets a free pass. No matter who you are, there will be trials. There will be difficulties. There will be sufferings. There will be times of persecution. There will be struggles. It's just part and parcel of life. But here is something interesting. And the two parallel accounts of this in Mark chapter 6 and Matthew 14, we find that before Jesus withdraws to the mountain, those accounts tell us that he takes his disciples down to the boats, gets them in the boats, and tells them to head across. It's not mentioned here in John. But he intentionally takes these men that he loved and he says, start rowing. He sends them into the storm. Do you realize that? Jesus knew that there was going to be a storm. He sends them into the storm. Not only is this a broken world inherent with troubles, but apparently what we can see is as believers, there are divinely ordained suffering. Divinely ordained. Now as a reformed believer, a Calvinist if you will, I believe that everything is ordained. I believe in the sovereignty of God. If God is not sovereign, he is not God. If something can get by him and he be surprised by something, he's just not God. So God is sovereign. But if we can just speak in categories for a second, biblical categories of suffering for a second. As we just mentioned, there seems to be suffering as a fallout of this broken world. The tyrannies and oppressions, tsunamis and earthquakes, the cancers, the pains, the deaths that Joan has even, in her testimony, given evidence to. The struggles that come with living in a fallen world. There also seems to be struggles and suffering caused by Satan and demons in the Bible. This is what we learn from books like Job. People like Peter, who Jesus says, turns to him and says, you have been asked to be sifted like wheat. Yes, Satan and the demons are real. But they're not the cause of everything, guys. Don't give them too much credit. Yes, they do cause suffering in our lives, but don't give them too much credit. Because suffering is also, thirdly, a consequence of our own sin. As we sin, there will be consequences, and that will be not pleasant. We have examples of this in Judges with Jephthah's rash vow. If you give me victory, I'll give you my daughter. Consequence of that, Moses striking the rock. David, his life. You know, the consequence of his sin with Bathsheba was the death of his child, the death of his child. How incredible suffering. And with Peter, we're not told a whole lot about what he went through after he denied the Lord three times. But we know from the end of John's Gospel that he was so thankful to be forgiven by the Lord. And then there's what we see here, which is what I'm calling divinely ordained trials, struggles that are specifically brought on by God for a specific purpose. And that's the key to these trials, guys. 
There is a purpose in the suffering, in the difficulty, in the struggles that God has for us. That's the Romans 8.28 that we all love to quote. But it's a wonderful mystery, isn't it? All things work towards good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Everything works towards good. What is the good that comes out of struggles? Well, I, can, I think I can, I can give you just two sides of the same coin. It either exposes some sin or some heart, hardness of heart, or it's there to teach you about God's kingdom and who God is. And they're not mutually exclusive. I think those are the two good purposes that God has in the storms of life. And when we look at this account, when Jesus sends them into the storm, he has a purpose of teaching them who he is. The purpose here is to teach his disciples who God is and his faithfulness. And I'd like to draw our attention just quickly to three actions of God and what they mean in this miracle. First, I'd like to draw our attention to the fact that Jesus waits and watches. He waits and watches. In verse 17, we read here, it says, By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. In Matthew's account of this, it says, He waited until the fourth watch of the night. In the Roman time, the night was divided into four watches, six to nine, nine to midnight, midnight to three in the morning, three in the morning to six in the morning. Jesus waited between three and six in the morning to go out to his disciples. He waited, and he knew they were struggling. Why did Jesus wait? Why does Jesus wait? Why doesn't Jesus just swoop in and show his love for us, show how much he cares for us by, by immediately coming in when we have difficulties? I mean, that's what we do, right? If you love somebody, if you love somebody, you're going to immediately swoop in when they have trouble, right? That shows love. And it does. And sometimes God does that. And I think you, you guys could give testimony to that probably in your own life. But sometimes God waits. He waits. What we have to learn is that struggle many times is good. Struggle many times is good. Because there are some things that prolonged suffering, prolonged difficulty, prolonged struggle will teach you that, that alleviating it will not teach you. You've all heard, I'm sure, that example of the empire, the emperor moth. You know, in the cocoon, the emperor moth is in this cocoon, and when it comes out, it actually comes out. It's a it's a rather big cocoon, but it come the the, the moth it turns into a moth from the larva when it emerges from a very 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 small slit, and it has to struggle to get out. And if you help it. If you swoop in and make the slit a little bigger and the larvae comes out, that moth will never fly. 
Because the intended purpose by God is that as the larvae, as, as the moth pushes itself through that little hole, the pain, the struggle that it takes, it actually pushes the fluid out of its bodies and into its wings. That moth will never fly if you help it too soon. It has to struggle in order to fly. You see, God's waiting is actually good for us. It's hard for us to really come to grips with. But the struggle is actually necessary to teach us some things we simply wouldn't learn if we swoop in too early. That's why I love part of Miris Academy's philosophy of education, the classical school that, that meets here. Part of their philosophy of education is allow room for children to struggle. Allow them to struggle. Allow them not to get it and to work and, and maybe become frustrated a little bit. Don't swoop in too early because children learn things that they won't learn if you swoop in. They'll learn humility that they don't know it all. They'll learn dependence. They need somebody. They learn perseverance. I've got to keep at this. You know, the realization that they come to, hopefully is that they need somebody outside themselves to help them. I can't do it. And boy, doesn't that translate beautifully into the gospel. You know, if our kids can learn that they need somebody from outside, that they need to depend on somebody else, that they can't do it themselves, that they need somebody else to come. Boy, I mean, that's the... That's the the go square of the gospel and the monopoly board, if you will. You need to know that. You need to start in a place where you go, I can't do this, Lord. I can't do enough good. I can't be enough of a good person to make it to heaven. I need you. I need somebody else to do it for me. I need somebody else's righteousness because I, I can't be righteous. I can't. Praise God that Jesus, that is the gospel. He came and lived the perfect life that you and I just can't live. Our thoughts are too fast, aren't they, guys? Our mouths are too fast, maybe women. He lived the perfect sinless life. And he took the punishment for our sin. All those thoughts that run through our mind, guys. All those things that come flying out of your mouth, girls. He took the punishment for. And the transaction on the cross is, I take your punishment. Here's my righteousness. You take it. It's a free gift. I'll take your blame. You take my perfection. That's what it means to trust Christ. To be able to look outside yourself and say, I can't do this thing. But not only does God just wait, he also watches. He watches. In Mark's account in, the, in chapter 6, it tells us he's up on the mountainside. John doesn't tell us this. He's up on the mountainside, and he is watching his disciples straining at the oars. Now, I don't know if that's miraculous, you know, or if he could actually see them. 
being up on the mountainside. I don't know. We're not told. But he knew what was going on. He had his eye on his loved ones, is the point. He waits, but he doesn't wait as if, you know, we don't, he didn't know what was going on. He waits and he keeps his eye on his loved ones. It's so easy to think so many times in our lives when we're struggling, when we're in a, t- a season of struggle that God has forgotten us, isn't it? You know, we, we, we say, like so many of the, the Psalms in the Bible, God, where are you? You know, that's when, the, that's when those types of thoughts come in, when we're, an intent, we're in the crucible. We think we've been abandoned. In my quiet time uh, this past week, I, I read Psalm 10. If you're doing the devotional that, that uh, I recommended, you'll see this as familiar. Where David wrote how he was feeling abandoned by God, and he writes this, Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself from me in times of trouble? That's how David was feeling emotionally. And many times that's how we feel emotionally. But as David comes to understand, and as we have to come to understand, that that is emotional blindness. It's not true. Often in times of trouble, our emotions get the better of us, don't they? We all go through this. If circumstances aren't alleviated in our timing, we think God's abandoned us or forgotten us or not doing anything. He doesn't know what we're going through. His eye isn't on us. It's precisely at times like this that we have to remember what God tells us and not what our emotions are welling up in us. Not to feel what is true, but to know what is true. Billy Graham once saw on a cell, prison cell in Europe, he found these walls, these, these words inscribed on the wall. He said, I believe in love even when I don't feel it. I believe in God even when he is silent. And that's what scripture teaches us, guys. In Acts 17, when Paul is talking to the Athenians, he says, God is near. He, He wasn't just making, you know, petitioning them to turn to God. He's saying that's true. David, in this, in the great Psalm of 139, uh, says it this way. He says, where can I go from your presence? You know this psalm. Up to the heavens and you are there. In the depths and you are there. If I go to the far side of the sea, there you are. In times of difficulty, it's easy to think that God has abandoned you. That's what your heart is going to tell you. But he hasn't. Kids, if you are learning the catechism which I recommend that you do. I recommend your parents teach your kids the catechism because that teaches you the foundations of the faith. If you're teaching your, the, kids, the, the kids' catechism, question 10 asks you, where is God? Do you remember the answer, anybody? Where is God? Everywhere. We adults have to remember that. He's with you. When you're struggling and you're tempted to think that God is not there, that he's forgotten you, that you're abandoned, remember his eye is always on you. 
Because he loves you. You are his son or daughter. As a parent keeps an eye on their children. How much more God on his children. But God wonderfully doesn't just wait and watch when we're struggling. If that was all God did, you could rightfully be bitter at God. But that's not all he does. He also helps. He also helps. It says, when they had rowed three, three and a half miles in verse 19, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. We do not have a God who is detached and distant. No, we have a God who comes and helps us in our times of need. He helps us. He's active. Psalm fifty fifteen, call and I will deliver you. The Psalms are filled with these types of, of encouragements to us. Call and I'm there. I'm here to help. Psalm 91, Psalm 145, Isaiah 41, Isaiah 55, Micah 7, Jeremiah 33. They're filled with these type of things. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 65 says, Before you call, I will answer. That's the kind of God Not a detached God, but one who helps. And here in verse 19, we see Jesus walking out to them on the water. And he climbs into the boat. And Matthew and Mark, not here, but Matthew and Mark, tell us that the storm instantly calmed. As soon as he got in the boat. Jesus helps us in our time of need. We all know that. We've all heard that. But what I'd like you to notice in John's account is that at first they don't recognize him, do they? Here he comes. They see this guy coming, and they're terrified. They don't know who it is. Matthew and Mark tell us they think he's even a ghost. They don't recognize Jesus coming to help. Tim Keller, in his comments on the devotional I just mentioned, In Psalm 9, he says, We must discern God's wonderful deeds in our lives. However, we must also learn to see the more subtle ways God comforts us. Just when we're ready to give up, he brings a right friend or a book or a line of thinking into our lives just when we need it. Keller is putting his finger on something here. I think is in the text too. So many times we don't recognize when God is helping us. We don't see it. We're blind to it. There's a lot of study that's been done on on people that have been given sight who have been blind since either birth or shortly after birth. And, and in the late 90s, they were able to actually do eye transplant surgeries and give these blind people sight for the first time. It was very interesting. When they, when they would give these people that have been blind for 20, 30, 40 years sight, at first they're just overwhelmed. You know, they, they're seeing motion and color And they're just overwhelmed with actually being able to see. But then what happens, they found, is that they go through a time of depression and frustration. Because they don't know 
what depth is. They don't understand how depth and height, what they are. And they get discombobulated and they can't process it. They, they, can't, they can't understand even gender they found. They can't delineate between gender. They can't recognize these things. These things that we take for granted. That, that even as I was reading about this, didn't make sense to me. These people that have been given blind are frustrated because they can't see and understand and recognize these things. When we're regenerated by the Holy Spirit, when we're given new life, we're given new eyes to see. We begin to see God's providence and his sovereignty and how he helps. And the light rushes in and we're enabled to see how God helps and how he works in the world. But so many times we become frustrated, don't we? And our frustration comes in the form of why questions. God, why aren't you helping right now? God, why aren't you doing anything? God, why aren't you there? These are the questions of somebody who does not recognize, cannot see, cannot, cannot comprehend how God is helping. It's precisely at those times we need to understand that we are on a learning curve. Just like the blind man being given sight. Just as a newly sighted person needs to learn distance and depth and facial expressions and what they mean, we need to learn the subtle ways that God helps. One way you can do that is what we did here in prayer. When you take time, take extended times, and just thanking God, you begin to see the subtle ways in which God is always there helping. Maybe think back over your life and how God has, has impacted your life, how he's helped you through seasons of difficulty and the subtle ways that he has helped. We all see the macro ways, that's easy. But the subtle ways, bringing a friend at just the right time, maybe bring a scripture up that, that, that brought amazing solace. We have to focus and meditate on thanking God. And this helps you and me see the ways that he subtly works in our lives. The third insight into God, what we learn from this miracle is that he saves. He waits and he watches, he helps, but he also saves. If you look at verse 21, you see that they're willing to take him into the boat. Isn't that a nice way of putting it? Then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. He not only calms the storm, but he gets them safely to their destination. Only after we're willing to let God into our boat, to let Jesus into the boat. And after that, he got them safely. And the application is pretty obvious here. 
Jesus not only waits and watches and helps, but ultimately he gets us to safety. Ultimately, he gets us to safety. You know, sometimes the storms in your life will be short-lived. Maybe it's a day or a week, you know, or you're at a job for, for a month, and that's a short storm. Sometimes the storms are longer. You know, I know people that have had marital issues the whole time they've been married. That's a long storm. And sometimes the storm is lifelong. Have you ever thought about that? There's a person that you know named Johnny Erickson Tata. I've mentioned her a couple times. She broke her neck when she was 18. She's quadriplegic the rest of her life instantly. That was 42 years ago. The storm that she's been in, That's been lifelong. Even after her lifelong straining at those oars, the beauty of having Jesus in your boat, and she knows Jesus as her Savior, the comfort of having Jesus in your life brings the realization that Johnny Erickson Tata came to. In this life, you will have trouble. But take heart. Jesus has overcome this world. Tata writes in her book, Heaven, which I commend to all of you, the best, hope we can, we, the best we can hope for in this life is a not whole peek at the shining realities ahead. Get a glimpse, yet a glimpse is enough. It's enough to convince our hearts that whatever sufferings and sorrows currently assail us aren't worthy of comparison to that which waits over the horizon. She knows Jesus will get her safely to shore. She's still in the storm, but she has hope and the peace and the assurance that Jesus will ultimately get her to the shore. She is saved. She knows where she's going. And that's the, always the question that the gospel brings to bear on every life, is do you know, do you have Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Galatians 4.4 4 tells us that when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that, we might have the full rights as sons. By placing your trust in Jesus, you know, it just doesn't guarantee that there will be no suffering in your life. But you know what? Jesus is watching and he cares. By having Jesus in your life, it doesn't guarantee that there will be no trials or struggles. But you know what it does guarantee? That he's with you and that he'll help you in big ways and little. By making Jesus Lord of your life, it does not guarantee that this life will be easy. But what it does guarantee is that your next life will. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. And Spirit, I pray that you will apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.